So as we begin looking at uh, this chapter 2, beginning uh, in verse 11, I want to ask you a question this morning. And that is, what is your passion in life? What is your passion in life? Now I'm going to wager that that's not the first time that someone has asked you that. Because our society encourages us to pursue our passions. You've all heard the, uh, the, the, the kind of worldly advice of find your passion and pursue your passion. And on the surface, that sounds like a good idea, doesn't it? Just on the surface, if you're going to live life in this world, we ought to have a happy one. And what could be happier than pursuing your passions? But this belief has done much to transform our society today. A very clear evidence of this in our modern day and age is the massive sexual revolution that we have seen in the past 50 years that has come about because this doctrine of pursuing your passions is what dominates. Recently, well actually a couple of years ago now, uh, in Toronto, in every elementary school, there was a, a sign or a poster that went up. And on this poster, it said, all you need is love, right? From the Beatles song. All you need is love, right? But on the poster, there was a picture of a man and a woman. There was a picture of a man and a man. There was a picture of a woman and a woman. And for the first time, a man and two women. Give you an idea where we are in terms of our sexual revolution. And that asks the question, do we just pursue our passion? Is love all you need? Is that all there is? The pursue your passions mindset, at its core, is based on the concept of self-autonomy. I am my own God. That is, you alone are judge of what is right and wrong. And if you think it's okay, or if a group of you, a group of people think, or even a majority of people think that it's okay, then it becomes okay. This is the basis of the atheistic and secular worldview that is dominant now in our Western civilization. Some of you may have heard of a British philosopher and novelist named Aldous Huxley. He is a good example of this kind of thinking. Huxley was this British novelist who wrote a book that, I don't know if you read it here in your high schools, but we read it in our high schools in Canada, called Brave New World. Has anyone heard of that? Brave New World? Heard of it. Well, Huxley was one of the grandsons of Charles Darwin. Uh, Charles Darwin's biggest supporters, and he was an avowed atheist. But one of the things that's a bit refreshing about Huxley is that he was at least honest about his atheism. In his book, Ends and Means, in 1937, he gave his honest rationale for believing in a godless worldview. He says this, I had motive for not wanting the world to have a meaning. Consequently, assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. 
The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do, or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in a way that they find most advantageous to themselves. And he goes on personally. He says, For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. He was a sexually very immoral man. But Huxley understood that his pursuit of his passions depended on his ability to assert that the world is meaningless. The world is meaningless, then why does it matter what I do? So that he could pursue his passions at the center of his life and existence. But brothers and sisters, I want to assert to you today that this text gives a radically different message. It teaches that the center of human existence has to do with the appearance of Jesus Christ who brought salvation to sinners. It has to do with the gospel of grace, the grace of God. And this passage calls on us to renounce worldly passions and to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live our lives, to enjoy We're not joyless Christians to enjoy God and to serve Him alone. It calls us together in an institution called the church where the gospel message of Jesus Christ is declared with binding authority through the Holy Spirit to all the world. So again, let me ask you a question. What is your passion? Is it to follow your inner voice to self-justification. That's Huxley's. But the Bible says that that leads to destruction. In Matthew, the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Instead, the gospel, the word of God, calls us to delight in the grace of God. The gospel then transforms us more and more into the image of our Creator. Now, as we'll see today, this is something that is not done in isolation. It's done in community with each other. It's done right here with Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, Barbados. And I don't mean this lovely building. I mean the people of Jesus Christ here gathered in this building. Let me just say to you this morning, if you have been stagnating in your spiritual walk, If you are alienated from God, if you are struggling, you need the church of Jesus Christ here at CRBC. You need vertical fellowship with God, and you need horizontal fellowship with each other. Sanctification or or growth in grace happens not in isolation, but in community. And it happens right here. This morning, we're going to examine what is at the center of the institution of the church. What is a church to be centered on? The answer in our text, I'm going to give it away right at the beginning, is the gospel. The gospel. And specifically, we're going to see the centrality of the gospel in the church. As Paul exposes it here, I want us to see it under four headings this morning. 
First, in verse 11, we see the grace of the gospel. The gospel is founded on grace. Secondly, we're going to see the discipline of the gospel in verse 12. Then the hope of the gospel in verses 13 and 14. And finally, the authority of the gospel in verse 15. The discipline, the grace, the discipline, the hope, and the authority of the gospel. Well, let's dive in, shall we? Verse 11, the grace of the gospel. What's going on in this passage as we, in, as we dive into this middle of this second chapter? What's the context? Well, it's helpful us to see that Paul established a church, a Christian church, on Crete. But the church in Crete and the culture in Crete was one of great worldliness and sexual immorality. And indeed, uh, all kinds and manner of sin. It's a controversial statement in chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul quotes another uh, source which talks about how the Cretans are a, uh, the, the culture is one that is definitely in opposition to Jesus Christ. But this is the, the glory of the gospel. The Apostle Paul, by God's grace and through the Holy Spirit, has established a church here. He has been sent as a missionary to do that. And this church is now making an impact. And the people in that church, being transformed by the grace of God, can then have a transforming impact on the culture around them. And this is exactly what the, the, the Christian church does. When it goes somewhere, it transforms the area around it. What we don't, and perhaps forget, is the impact of Christian missions isn't just seen in the conversion of Christians. When William Carey went to India, he brought the first daily newspapers into uh, India. He, he brought the first dictionaries he, he ended, the, pers- the, the, he ended the, the wicked practice of sati, which was the burning of widows with their husbands. So if their husbands died before their wives, the wives would be burned alive. And he regarded this as great wickedness. And he advocated and was involved in that culture to address them. Christianity has a tremendous extended impact. But it begins with how Christians conduct themselves in the church. And in chapter 2, here in Titus, Paul is giving various commands to people groups in the Christian congregation that are before him. The older women and the older men are to instruct the younger women and the younger men. Very practical. He, He charges the women to disciple the women and the men to disciple the men. Even giving instructions to the slaves and leadership of the church. He's telling them all how to relate in the context of the gospel. And then as we see broadly in verse 10, um, older men are to instruct younger and older to instruct the younger. The instructions include calls to steadfastness, to integrity, to purity, to self-control. These are all imperatives. These are all commands in our passage. We're going to see the connection of these ethical commands to the doctrine of God our Savior, as he says here in verse 10. But Paul's approach, I want you to notice here, is a bit different. I know you guys have been going through the book of Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is classically Pauline in its structure. It's 
classically gospel-oriented in its structure. It starts with the indicatives of the gospel and moves to the imperatives. The indicatives are who you are in Christ Jesus, and the imperatives are what you must do. But here we see a little bit of an inversion in Titus chapter 2. They are still connected, but he starts with imperatives, and then he said, this is why you must do these things. This is why you need to do it. And that key word there in verse 11 is for. It connects us to that. So he's not just saying, you know, here are these moral statements. Be moral for the sake of being moral. No. He's saying be this way for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of what Christ has accomplished here. You don't give a person a compelling reason why they should do something then you can't really expect them to do it. If I got up here and told you, be good to one another, you might say, well, yeah, that sounds all right. But you know, it's kind of inconvenient. It costs me money. I don't really feel like it. Pastor Chris said it. All right, well... He lives 3,000 kilometers away. What's he going to do? And I want you to recognize, brothers and sisters, it may sound humorous, but the reality is, this is what's happened in the mainline Christian churches. They've evacuated the gospel foundation, and they have preached bare moralism. In Canada, it started in one denomination in the 1950s when they changed... The, uh, the, the Sunday school curriculum away from being a gospel center to tell kids, be good to each other. Share. All of those things. Now, I don't know if any of you who have young parents have tried to just give bare authority to your child and said, share. It doesn't work. I have four children. Trust me. It does not work. They are not naturally geared that way. You have to train them. Teach them why. Look. You've been given so many things. Why can't you just share some of them? Right? That's, that's a reason. In a sense, we see a rational underpinning. But it's also why many people are leaving mainline churches. They don't have a gospel motivation. Churches are no longer based on the simple gospel truth that we are miserable, helpless wretches. The church where we meet is a liberal church. And in their hymn book, they've changed the hymn, the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. And they've changed it and said, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved Such a One as Me. Very different. But doesn't it evacuate it of its power? Don't you love to sing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me? There's a certain joy in confessing our wretchedness and our delight in depending upon the grace of God. That's what a true church is. A gospel-centered congregation of people instituted and centered on Jesus Christ, the Savior. But what's at the heart here? What's he focused on? What is at the heart of this Christian congregation? Well, of course, it's Jesus. Verse 11 for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. 
Jesus. That's who he's responding to. Jesus is the gospel. Now we use that word gospel a lot. Pastor John was asking his son as we were driving down here, what is the gospel? Right? And on a very simple level, it is good news. That's what it means, literally. The gospel is good news. But to understand good news, you need to understand the bad news. You cannot have good news without bad news. The reality of the gospel is that God created a perfect world. But man sinned. And God cast him out. That's the bad news. That under Adam, we are all under God's wrath and condemnation. Every single one. The Bible says in Romans that there is no one who seeks for God. No, not one. If you read that passage in Romans 3, it is clear. But the grace of God, the good news of the gospel, is that it's not dependent on man's effort. God in his grace gave us Jesus. He gave us this Wonderful gift. We deserve the unmitigating hurricane fury of God's wrath. But he gave us Jesus. For the grace of God has appeared. Grace appeared. It was revealed. The Greek word here is epiphany. Right? Epiphanos. We understand what that means. An epiphany is something that has appeared, is revealed. Grace was revealed by God. That's the doctrine of the incarnation. God gave us grace in Jesus Christ. He came and he had a purpose. And the purpose was to go to the cross and to die to bear the full wrath of God against our sin in order that we could have that great exchange of his righteousness for our sin. Our sin for His righteousness. The greatest bargain that you can enjoy. I went to the uh, souvenir place that Sister Mariah suggested. I couldn't believe the prices here in Barbados. It was incredible. It was a bargain. It's nothing. Not even, not even a hint of the great bargain, the great wonder, the great mercy of God given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This epiphany that comes here, this, this revelation, wasn't just a visual spectacle of Jesus coming down in the flesh. It wasn't just a fireworks display that flashes and thrills in the moment and then fades and is gone. No, that actually wouldn't be gracious. Grace changes things. The gospel changes things. God's grace had dawned on these Cretan Christians... And it dawned in incredible ways, regardless of their age, regardless of their gender, or their culture, or their social standing. God's grace always reigns in righteousness. And Paul is saying here in this, this passage, in our, in our situation here, is that God's grace not only provides salvation from sin, but it's God's grace transforms. And therefore, the, the elders... And uh, Titus, in these churches, must expect and encourage every member of the flock called by grace to live and grow in righteousness by grace. 
if you are thrilled with the gospel of Jesus Christ, then it will necessarily follow that you will seek to conform yourself to Jesus Christ. When you recognize the wretchedness of your sin, the fact that, that God has, has rescued you in Christ Jesus, and He has given you a new heart and a new life, and all of those very blessings, then we have an obligation, nay, a command, to follow in His paths. Now, we have seen this, this statement here of bringing salvation. Now, some of you who are paying attention will notice the language here. It says salvation for all people. What does Paul mean here when he says that God's grace has brought salvation to all men? Is Paul a universalist? Does he mean that all humanity has been saved in Christ Jesus? That every last person who has ever lived has been redeemed and saved by Jesus Christ? Well, of course not. Paul has already in the context of chapter 1 talked about false teachers who are headed to destruction and hell because of their false teaching. And Paul, throughout the rest of his writings and his letters, makes it clear that there are many people who do not embrace Jesus Christ for salvation as he is offered in the gospel and thus are destined for eternal punishment, God's eternal punishment, not for eternal fellowship with God. They go to hell and not to heaven. Paul does not teach universalism, that all men are saved. This week, when we were at the, the conference, one of the speakers spoke on the topic I think many people struggle with, the idea of a limited atonement. Limited atonement. I actually prefer the term definite atonement or particular redemption. In fact, Reformed Baptists were once called particular Baptists. Doesn't look good on the sign these days. But it had to do with this doctrine of redemption. Who did Christ die for? And in the discussion, one of the interesting things that, that came out, and I, was, I posted this up on Facebook uh, yesterday because I think that it was helpful. There was a discussion about who did Jesus Christ die for? Well, we look at this passage, it says that he brings salvation for all people. Well, he can't because we see that there are some already in the context of uh, Titus here that are going to hell for their own false teaching. But we need to understand the, the understanding of the logic of this. Every Christian, every Bible-believing Christian believes in limited atonement. And I mean both Calvinists and Arminians. And you might say, well, Pastor Chris, you haven't talked to my Arminian friends. They don't believe in limited atonement. Yes, we all believe in limited atonement. Because we believe, if you believe that there is anybody in hell, you believe that there is a limit on atonement. The Arminian believes that there is a limit in the power of the atonement. Right? There's a, a, that, that when Jesus died, there is a potential to save everybody. But the Calvinists, we believe in the scope. There's a limit in the scope of it. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save his sheep. My sheep know my voice. And it's important that we understand that. Dr. John Owen is very, very helpful in helping us to understand that. He says this. He says, The Father imposed his wrath due unto 
and the Son underwent punishment for, he's talking about the cross, either all the sins of all men, all the sins of some men, or some of the sins of all men. Say it again. Jesus Christ endured punishment for all the sins of all men, which is universalism, all the sins of some men, which is basically reformed soteriology, the doctrines of grace, or some of the sins of all men. And he goes, and he looks at this, he says, well, if Jesus died for some of the sins of all men and we're still responsible for some sin, then there's no salvation. Right? How will I know? If we believe that he died for all of the sins of some men, that is the doctrine of election. That is his people that he's called out. But if he died for all the sins of all men, then what do we do with unbelief? Is that not a sin? If it is a sin, and Christ suffered the punishment due to it, if he did that, why must that stop anyone else from being saved? If he died for all the sins of all men, then surely unbelief is something that he died to address. We need to understand that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was efficacious. He died for all the sins of some. Now, one of the things when I was preaching it this week that I thought to bring out, and I think it's just important to add, is that the context of predestination and election and all of those things in the scriptures is mainly to provide encouragement or humility. But it's to provide encouragement that God is the one who saves. It is a sovereign act of God. The point here in the text is that Christ appeared bringing salvation for all who would believe in him. So when we interpret this, what Paul is teaching here is that God's grace has appeared in an epiphany. Jesus Christ brings salvation to all kinds and classes of people. And that's why we as a church are made up of all kinds and classes. Rich and poor, educated and uneducated, healthy and sick, different ethnicities, different ages. There is no barrier or bound to God's grace. Jesus can save anybody. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We see, secondly, the discipline of the gospel. You've seen the grace of the gospel in verse 11. Verse 12, we see the discipline of the gospel. The gospel, the grace that God gives us is a transforming grace. A grace that demands change. Look at what he says. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Very simply, the grace of the gospel teaches us to say no to ungodliness and yes to living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. First of all, it teaches us to say no to the world. Instead of following our passions, the gospel recognizes our constant need for transformation, for repentance. 
Martin Luther, when he nailed the 95 Theses on the wall on the door of the church in Wittenberg, the first thesis there was that the life of the Christian will be one of continual repentance. Not one, I'm saved and done, but a confession of sin and then a continual confession of sin as we see more and more the effects of sin in our lives. If you are a Christian, you have been changed radically by the Spirit of God. You've been given a new heart, but even still, to the end of our days, we will carry around with us a certain amount of the curse of sin. And because of that, there is the constant possibility. We don't have to, because when we're born in sin, we are almost uh, obligated to follow our sinful nature. But once we are saved, we have a choice, whether we sin or we pursue righteousness. But as a result of, uh, of this, we still can sin as Christians. We can still be guilty of ungodliness. We can still yield to worldly passions. The sinful desires that are all too prominent in our world that is in rebellion against God. And so we need to pray. And we need to strive. But let me encourage you. Did you know that you've already prayed about this today? Did you know that? If you've been engaged with us in worship this morning, then you've already prayed much of what we are preaching on here. We choose the hymns here to reflect the content of the message. And if you sang with us hymn number 161, I encourage you to turn there for just a second. You'll see that you actually have called upon God to help you. I'm indebted to Ligon Duncan for pointing this out, but I think this, this hymn that, this, that I think is new to you, hymn number 161, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling, you might like the tune, and that's a good thing. But I want you to love the words. The content. Take out your hymnals. Look at, look, at, look at the second stanza. You prayed as you sang. If you look down the page, you prayed that the Lord would take away the love of sinning. Take away the love of sinning. Alpha and Omega B. Right? Take away the love of sinning. May you, God, be the beginning and end. And Paul is saying here in Titus 2, verse 12, that grace, when grace is at work in you, it works a way to take away your love of sinning. So as you sang, you prayed, God, take away the love of sinning. But you not only prayed that, you also prayed, if you look at verse 4 of the, the hymn that we just sang, that the Lord would finish in you his new creation. And that he would see his great salvation perfectly restored in you. And that we would be changed from glory into glory. In other words, you prayed the petitions of the two parts of verse 12. That you would deny ungodliness and worldly desires on the one hand. That's the negative part of grace work in you, transforming you, and that positively you would live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Praise the Lord. That's why we sin. Jesus Christ, the grace of God's salvation, teaches us godliness. Where His grace remains, 
It teaches us to hate wickedness and to love godliness. Now, many have pointed to these words here in verse 12, these three uh, words here, <clears throat> and the, 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 the emphasis here, the self-controlled, the upright, and the godly, each point in a different direction. The self-control points to us ourselves. The uprightness is something that we recognize in other men. Say, boy, he really is upright. Right? We talk about an upright citizen in the culture. And then, of course, godliness to God. We are to be self-controlled, upright, and godly. This means that there's nothing unbalanced about the life of grace. That grace enables us to live. There's a, there's a wholeness to it. There's an all-roundedness. We don't deny self, we don't deny each other, and we don't deny God. The aim of divine grace is to make us Christians in every sphere and activity. Whether it be what we do before men, what God alone sees, or what is related to ourselves. Let me just ask you this morning, is that something that's reflected in your life? Let me ask you some questions, a little bit more pointed and applicatory out of this. As you hear the scriptures this morning, have you lost the ability to say no? Have you lost your ability? Do worldly passions control you? Let me ask you a searching question. If you have Netflix or YouTube or your internet history, what would it tell, you, tell me or tell anyone else about you if we were to see that exposed? We are seeing... Uh, a transformation in the access to entertainment and all of those things. People are engaging in binge-watching, right? Not just watching something, binging, skipping all kinds of things to do this. I admit, there's some good things that are out there, but there's also some very poor things. Do you delight in modern dramas that are very well-written, but increasingly, softly, or more hard these days, titillating, using pornographic imagery. Just ask you a simple question. What do you watch? And why do you watch it? Have you lost your ability to assess and to say no to something because you have been so influenced by the world and what our culture approves that you don't even think about it anymore? It's easy. Spiritual blindness is inevitable if we don't distinguish ourselves from our culture, which denies itself nothing. The world today denies itself nothing. So what do you deny yourself for the sake of godliness? Is there anything you won't watch or do? We are surrounded by a world that literally says no to really nothing except perhaps the gospel. Let me just ask you, as a Christian, if you are a Christian this morning, have you lost your saltiness? Jesus calls us to be the salt of the world. Are you different than your coworkers, than your friends, than your neighbors around you? Do you blend in at work with the coarse joking or the loose morality? 
Have you lost the ability to say no? Well, let me ask you another question. Have you lost the concern about living a yes? Many people get concerned. When you start talking about self-denial and the pleasures of the world, they worry that you're slipping into fundamentalism. And soon, outside CRBC will put up a banner, we don't drink, we don't dance, and we don't chew, and we don't go with girls who do. Right? That's more of a Southern Baptist thing. But emphasizing, we don't do these things, and that's what defines us. As human beings, we affirm that we cannot judge the thoughts and motives of others. And this limits my ability and your ability and right to draw hard lines for others where matters are not directly addressed in the Bible themselves. But this limitation does not allow me or any other Christian to stop being concerned for the effects of our actions on others. The Christian life cannot be lived autonomously. And our ascent to live godly lives requires us to consider others as we make our choices. In other words, we need to think how we affect each other. When God, when, sorry, when Paul outlines the behavior God expects of those in the household of faith, he reminds each member that he or she is not alone. The actions of each touch the other. Older men are to set an example for younger men. Older women are to be reverent so that they can teach the younger women to be so. Titus himself, in verse 7 here, is called to be an example to others. And so, do we? Pastor John and I have responsibilities as your pastors, and you have responsibilities as professing believers and members in Jesus Christ's church. But the final question that I think comes out of verse 12 here is, are you willing to act now in the present age? Now we know that no one has a right to bind another's conscience or judge another's actions where scriptures are not specific, but the principles that bind Christians in their love for God and His people and His purposes are more about relationships than proof texts. When consciences made sensitive by the Spirit convince us that our conduct damages our heart's resonance with the Savior or contributes to damaging the heart's resonances of other Christians, then we need to act. This is why godliness is so dependent upon God. We need reminders of the Gospel. We need to be rooted back in these things. And it's not about... Me pursuing my passions for my own desire. It's me involved, both self-controlled, upright, and godly. Self-controlled in the sense that I have responsibility before God. Upright so that I don't cause my brothers and sisters to stumble. And godly because that's what I live for. To glorify God and to enjoy Him. But we have seen the grace of the gospel. We've seen the discipline of the gospel in verse 12. Now, in verses 13 and 14, let us look at the hope of the gospel. And as we read on in verse 13, it appears that Paul has a particular reason for emphasizing this grace. Waiting for our blessed hope, 
the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul wants to bring hope into the equation. This is the hope of the gospel. Now, normally when we use the word hope, we, it's in reference to something that's uncertain. I hope I get a job. I, I, I can't be sure, but I'm, I'm hoping. We, I hope that I'll be able to visit again next year around this time. But there's no guarantee that I will be able to be here next year. I, I'd love to be here next year, but I, I, there's no guarantee But I want to suggest to you, and I wanted you to see, that when the Bible talks about hope, it means something different. Paul uses the hope of eternal life in chapter 1 and verse 2. Just read that for a second. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. That's a hope based on a God who never lies. That sounds a lot more certain than, I hope I'll be here to see you next year. Right? The hope of a God who never lies. Hope is repeatedly used for blessings, which, if we are in Christ, will one day be ours. We do not have them yet. They still lie in the future, but they are promised to us in God, and therefore, they are sure. I say to my kids oftentimes, does Daddy keep his words? And they say, most of the time. They're right. But does God keep his word? Every time. Right? Just a simple catechistical, practical thing. God keeps his words every time. There are, as Joshua says, no falling words when it comes to God. And so this hope has a grounding and a foundation that is not in a wish fulfillment. It's in the fact that it is a God who does not lie. So this blessed hope that he speaks of here is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is something that is yet to happen in the future. The present age, which he refers to at the end of verse 12, has not yet run its course. But what is the substance of this hope? What does it mean to hope in Christ's return? Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, John 3 reminds us that Jesus Christ came, first of all, not to judge, but to save. That's what John 3.17 says. He did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. But we also know that Jesus is coming again. The second time. And as Hebrews tells us, it's appointed for every man to die and after that to face the judgment. When Jesus comes a second time, he will come in judgment. Now you're saying, I should hope in that? I should hope in the coming of Christ's judgment? Is this something to hope for? Yes. Yes, it is. Duncan points us to the Heidelberg Catechism. This is a Dutch catechism. Very personal. It's very 
very sweet. I, I, it's a great little addition to your personal devotions, the Heidelberg Catechism. But question 52 says this. What comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead? The answer is that in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven. You shall cost all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate me with all his chosen one to himself into heavenly joys and glory. This is the vindication of Jesus Christ. Without the hope of Christ's return, if he had not resurrected from the dead and, and, and promised to come back, as Paul uh, underlines in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if the resurrection wasn't true, we'd be hopeless and pathetic. Why? Because we'd be denying ourselves, we'd be saying no to the ungodliness of this world for nothing. And Paul says we are to be most pitied. But here's the reality. It is true. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he not only died and paid and worked efficaciously in his penal substitutionary atonement on the cross, he died and he was raised again on the third day. Jesus Christ lives. Praise the Lord. He, as the living Christ, resurrected from the dead, is our hope. And he is our vindication. And the one who will make all things right. We look at it this world. And I know you all have had an election. And I know that things have been difficult in Barbados. From what I've heard and read in the newspaper and various things. And there's this great sort of optimism that comes when a new political leader comes in. But then, after a while... After a few broken promises or directions that discourage, it's like, ah, oh, just like the same old, same old. Right? There's corruption. There's sin. So what do we do? We go on a cycle until there's a next election, and the next election, and the next election. No. That's not our hope. Our hope is not in political change or political revolution. Our hope is in Christ. When he comes, he'll make all things right. The wicked will be punished. The righteous will be saved. Not by their righteousness, but by his grace imputed to us. He is our hope. He is our vindication. He will make things right. Well, we've seen the grace of the gospel in verse 11. We've seen the discipline of the gospel in verse 12. We've seen something of the hope of the gospel in verses 13 and 14. Let us conclude in verse 15. And it's interesting where it, it, it lands here in our passage in verse 15. He says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The last thing that Paul says to Titus is found in verse 15. And there he reminds them that grace will not be disregarded. The work of Jesus Christ will have its effect. The word of God will have its effect. It will either condemn or it will say. These truths of the gospel need to be declared with authority. Let no one disregard you. 
Paul is essentially telling Titus to use what they would use in the Old Testament. Titus is to say, thus saith the Lord. This is God's word. He's not calling Titus to say, well, he should preach. It seems to me that we should follow these things. Right? He's to speak authoritatively to the people of God that reign, that God, the grace reigns in righteousness, not in sinning, not in anarchy, but in orderly, true Christian liberty, freedom from a life of sin, freedom unto obedience in Jesus Christ, freedom to do good works. Paul here says, Titus teaches people that if they really understand grace, they will be the most zealous, they will be the most willing, they will be the most committed, the most willingly obedient, faithful, Bible-obeying people that the world has seen. Because grace trains us and transforms us and calls us to deny ungodliness and to embrace godliness in the presence of all evil. And brothers and sisters, this is what the church is for. It is an institution of Jesus Christ to declare the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Salvation and hope is what we exist to proclaim. It gives hope to wretches like me. Hope has appeared and Christ has appeared so that we can say no to worldliness and yes to godliness. Living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This is where the significance is found. Right? The Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, do not store for yourselves treasures on earth where moss and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Remember we spoke of Aldous Huxley at the beginning Aldous Huxley was very famous and influential and he indulged himself in all manner of sexual immorality. And he published 50 books. And he had all of that. But did you know, he died in relative anonymity. It's really been more recently that some of those things have been revived. But he wasted away with cancer. And his death wasn't even acknowledged when it came because he died the same day that President Kennedy was shot in 1963. Nobody remembered his death. And to be frank, now he's faced the eternal judge. So let me ask you again. Do you want to invest your passions like he invested his passions. The treasure where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, where people forget you were even there. Or do you want something more? God gives us much grace and much treasure. And it's not for a, a fading time. It's for eternity. For all time. Do you want a few years of pleasure? Because let's face it, there is pleasure in sin. Anyone who tells you that that's not true is lying. There is a certain pleasure in sin. 
but it's pleasure for a short time. And then an eternity of suffering. Think of King David. I'm going through 2 Samuel in our evening series in uh, Toronto. And I'm just struck by how those few moments of pleasure with Bathsheba destroyed his kingship. And if it wasn't for the persevering grace of God, it would have destroyed him. Because in his own strength, what happened to David? After he committed that sin, he justified it to himself. He didn't do anything about it. In fact, between the the sin that he committed and when Nathan came and confronted him, this is as much as a year. So that meant that he was going to the temple and sacrificing and all these things until Nathan comes to him and tells him the parable of the rich man and the poor man. The rich man steals the poor man's lamb. David gets incensed. And Nathan, in the greatest application in any sermon at any time, says, You are the man! David is struck to his core. But that sin had consequences. His leadership was never the same after that. His family dissolved, murdering each other, raping. And then, ultimately, that microcosm of David's family was reflected in the society of Israel as they apostatized and turned away from their God. Is that what you want? to pursue your passions for. The next time that you have that decision, and it is a decision to sin, let's be honest, it's a decision to sin. Remember this. Remember, one sin can destroy your life. We, We toy with sin. We don't take it seriously. One sin can destroy your life. Now, I'm not saying that if you sin, your life is destroyed. God is gracious. But we're fools if we think that sin has no consequence. Anything that alienates us from God, anything that puts us into a negative relationship with Him will have consequences. So do you want to live a life pursuing your passions like Aldous Huxley, only to face an eternity of punishment? Or do you want to live a life zealously Pursuing the glory of your Savior. An eternity spent in fellowship and relationship with Him. Face to face. Walking with Him. This is the good news of the Gospel. We are not lost in our sin and wretchedness. Sin may have pleasure for a while, but even on this earth, it grows stale. It grows stale. It's empty. But walking with Jesus Christ, we drink from that living water of fellowship with Him. We will never grow thirsty again. We will have a great grace dominate our lives. And though we may not prosper as the evil do, eternally we will prosper in Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, may you delight in the grace of the gospel. May you Learn the discipline of the gospel and the hope of the gospel and know the authority of the gospel as you share it and as you live by it. To God be the glory. Amen.